Uh, hello, my name is Dan Byman. I'm a professor at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And I'm Jessica Davis. I'm the president of Insight Threat Intelligence and a former senior strategic analyst for CSIS. We're here to talk to you today about the would-be insurrection in Washington, D.C., and more broadly, the threat this sort of anti-government and white supremacist violence embodies. Um, I'm going to begin by making just a few points. Uh, first of all, there are a number of very unusual things we saw on January 6th that go beyond the fact that the U.S. Capitol was stormed by a mob, which for me at least was was quite an unusual thing. Uh, one was simply who was there. Uh, there have been numerous analyses in the days that have followed that showed that the insurrectionists were really kind of unusual mix of conspiracy theorists, um, white supremacists, anti-government extremists, and they're all kind of working together, but not fully coordinated. It's not a top-down movement, but it is a coordinated one. Um, a second thing I would highlight is that this is a movement that was supported uh, by the president of the United States and several Republican political leaders. Now, how much support is a matter of question, uh, but the idea that the president himself was egging on the um, rioters seems quite clear, and that's quite different than a lot of political violence we see. Um, the last thing I would raise is that there are big future questions here. Huge numbers of Republicans question the legitimacy of the election, even though the vast majority condemn violence. And surprisingly large percentages actually do think the assault on the Capitol was legitimate. Um, all this bodes rather poorly for the future because one of the biggest sources of people turning to violence is when they think legitimate political means are exhausted. And when people think the election was stolen, that's a great example. Uh, let me turn it over to uh, Jessica. So one of the things that we're starting to see a little bit of right now is some of the preparatory behaviors that the people who are involved in those events undertook. And while Dan pointed out some of those differences, I want to point out some of the similarities. And the biggest similarity that I've seen so far is on the financing side. So um, right now in terrorist financing in general, we see things like um, self-financing and crowdfunding and funding other people to take action on their behalf. And we're starting to see some evidence that this is partially how some of the individuals involved in the events got to Washington, how they bought some of their weapons that were involved were involved in that kind of thing. And I think that this is one of those things that's a continuation of our on, of our current extremism and terrorism environment. Um, the other thing that's interesting about that is that it demonstrates the number of people who maybe support this kind of activity that weren't actually willing to go there themselves. What do you think, Dan? Um, that's absolutely right. And a lot of these people, as we all know, are connected by social media. And this is another big shift. Uh, these groups have for years been enabled by social media companies. They have private Facebook groups. They talk on Twitter. And seeing them much more aggressively thrown off by the companies and, again, including the president of the United States. Now, one can be cynical and say that had President-elect Biden not won the 2020 election, that maybe the social media companies wouldn't have thrown President Trump off. But being able to deplatform people deprives them of large audiences. And it does have a number of potentially nasty follow-on effects. But for the most part, it greatly decreases their ability to reach new members and coordinate. And social media companies being more aggressive may be one of the more lasting positive legacies of this. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And it really makes me wonder a little bit about where this is going. Um, so we know that there's going to be some, probably some events or some incidents in, in the coming days. But what do you think this holds for the longer term? There'll be a couple of big question marks that I'm watching for answers. One is simply how aggressive the U.S. government is in going after these people. And so far, we've seen a series of arrests, and they're just likely to grow. Um, a number is uh, whether the, the momentum continues once Trump is no longer president. I can imagine it dying out, but I can imagine also a significant number of people having bitter anger, and these people are very well armed. Uh, what's your take on this, Jessica? So my take is very much that I think this is a persistent issue that we're going to be dealing with for probably many years to come. I think that there are a number of supporters, a, num a smaller number, of course, of hardcore um, people who really want to take action on their ideas. And I think even if we start to see a lot of crackdown um, by law enforcement, federal and, and local, I think we're still going to see adaptation by individuals who are opposed to um, the Biden administration, supporters of Trump, believers in the big lie, all of that kind of thing. So I do think that we're in for a bit of a long haul in terms of um, unrest on this side, on this in this space. One thing I would quickly add is we should also watch the state level in the United States where things may be calmer at the federal level, but we could see individual action against state governments, as we've seen in the past few years, that could be violent and very disturbing. Yeah, and a lot of the actions against the repression against these individuals or things that help them to or prevent them from taking action will depend on state capabilities and capacities as well. And I think that varies significantly. Uh, Jessica, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I want to say thank you for sharing six minutes with me. Thank you.